This episode brought to you by Royalty Cloud, Harvest Media's premium cloud-based service offering PRO and automated statements, royalty distributions and payments, and advanced analytics. Royalty Cloud, setting the global standard for managing royalties. And welcome to episode number 40 of Synchronized. Um, hi, Simon. Good to see you again. Hi, Ferry. Is it 40? It is 40. It's the big wow. 4-0. That's, that's amazing, amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, that's good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I'm very well, we... thanks, Ferry. Yeah, we're good here. Before, before you know it, uh, we have to retire. 65, <laughs> then this is the last episode of uh, Synchronized. So we've got 25 more to go. I think you're behind the times there, Ferry. You don't retire till you're 70-odd here now. Okay, well, that's, that's good for the listeners then. They get an extra five, right? That's true, yeah, yeah. We've got a great guest uh, uh, today, and um, I want to start with introducing Adam Taylor from APM. Um, hi, Adam, good to see you. Good morning, Ferry. How are you? I'm fine. Hi, Adam. Good. Hey, Simon. How's it going? Good, thanks. What we always do, Adam, is... Um, I know a lot of people know who you are and what you've done, but for the people who don't know, can you just briefly tell us how you got into this industry and how it all started? Sure. Uh, well, how the industry started, that's a long story, but, uh, you know, for the most part, library music started uh, in England, for the most part, in the 1940s after World War II, with light music being uh, used in, in the emerging programming platforms. And uh, eventually, you know, various libraries got created, uh, KPM Music being one of them, and uh, probably the, the leading library out there for a long time. And... Um, the, uh, there were other libraries that were created, and then um, in 1976, EMI bought uh, um, KPM, and uh, that's how EMI's involvement became, uh, began. Then they added on other uh, libraries over the many years. Uh, they had a, an uh, agent here in the U.S. that they weren't that happy with, and at the same time, the Bruton Library was uh, represented by the same agent, and was part of the ATV companies at that time. And so ATV with Sam Trust and EMI decided to set up their own company called uh, APM, Associated Production Music, um, in 1983. Mm. And so they opened an office in New York and in LA. And uh, 39 years later, we are still in the same office building in Los Angeles, <laughs> which is amazing to me. And uh, we have had uh, three presidents over the years, and I am the third. And I've been running APM now for almost uh, 21 years. And uh, I came to it through somebody who was on my board of directors who offered me the exciting opportunity. And I uh, was lucky enough to be chosen to run it. And it's been uh, life-changing and fascinating. And it continues to be because of the constant evolution of music and technology. What was so life-changing about getting into the production music? Well, for me, I uh, moved back to Los Angeles. I was uh, doing some things in Miami for a few years, and uh, I was down in Miami for about three years, and then I came back here to run APM. And also, it's a fascinating business. I had been in the entertainment business before producing TV programming, and so I knew about the entertainment industry, and it was... It was just great to be able to be on the side of a business where you don't have to pitch story ideas. You know, <laughs> it doesn't matter to me which TV show gets made. Obviously, I want good things to be made, but uh, we provide music uh, for those programs. And so, over the years, you know, APM has probably we were we actually started off probably as the biggest one because of the libraries that we represented on day one. 
with a very large market share. And uh, we have remained uh, uh, probably the biggest and um, an important supplier of music for storytelling over the many, many years, and not only for our core markets of TV and film and commercials and things, but all of the emerging markets, which I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll talk about. So, Adam, was, was music an important part of your youth? Are you, are you a musician, for instance? or uh, yeah. I, uh, I tell people that if, like, if I were to play, I play guitar, but I'm only good enough to put in my competitors' libraries. and no i don't write and i have these standard lines i've developed over the years they're all by rote now but if if i wrote two notes one of them would be wrong so no i mean i have i feel like i appreciate good music i grew up uh, around music with a lot of records that my father had and uh then in in high school and college i got into rock and uh was around the industry when I came back to New York and I knew a lot of people in the business. And uh, so this kind of felt like ultimately uh, a natural evolution. What does APM stand for, Adam? Is it American Production Music or? It's uh, Associated Production Music. And that was because uh, we were founded by ATV, Sam Trust, who had founded ATV. um, That stood for Associated Television. So he thought, okay, the Associated Word. They were trying to think up a name and they used that. But we don't really use that anymore. We just call ourselves APM Music. Right. So Uh, it started in 83. That's almost 40 years ago now. You you must have seen, uh, especially because you've been running it for like 20 years, you must have seen a lot of changes in the industry. Can you name the more important changes that took place? Well, when I started, we had a website, but there was no music on it. Um, we had listening rooms with LPs and CDs that clients would come into. We had four of them and you would have to book an appointment and come in and listen with one of our music directors and, uh, and then find the music. We would ship out, uh, at that time we had, I think about 3000 some odd, uh, CDs of material. And if somebody wanted the complete collection, we would actually have to ship every CD to them physically. Um, an enormous job, really, and obviously today everything is digital, and we have something over 15,000 albums worth of material. So uh, that's one. Um, But I think, you know, mostly the technology has changed every aspect of the music business from its creation to how it's distributed, um, how it's discovered, search, the monetization, uh, everything. And uh, that's been an enormous change. So that's required a whole lot of uh, changes to um, internal systems. And then uh, obviously had to build out the website and all of the customer facing things. And so that's been a very big change. And then over the last, I don't know, you know, five, seven years or so, or even more when you think about the creation of, of YouTube, um, that started off just as videos and nobody was paying attention to the music aspect of it. But uh, in order to not get sued, um, YouTube created the content ID thing. And without, I think, even knowing that it was going to become what it was going to become. And that led to the ability of, of copyright owners to monetize and video creators ultimately to be able to monetize, which led to the influencer economy over the years that wasn't there in the beginning but uh it grew and uh now we're in the next phases i I think that we are in the creator economy today where everybody can create something and monetize 
and uh, whether it's a, uh, a podcast or on Clubhouse, if that's still around, and uh, uh, on TikTok and YouTube and Instagram and Patreon and all these different platforms. So um, there's an opportunity for the individual to be able to express themselves. What, what I wonder, I sometimes say to people, I don't run a music company anymore. It's like more like an IT company. Do you have the same feeling? Yeah, that's something I have felt for a long time. Um, I mean, ultimately, our product is music, but the way it is accessed and discovered and utilized is such a, <clears throat> a vital part of the product that it's very difficult to separate them out. And so, yes, in, in many ways, we're a technology company. And there are years when we spend more money on technology than on music. So, Adam, does that mean that the uh, the people in your organization are more technology-based? I mean, you mentioned that you had lots of musical directors. Do you have fewer musical directors and more technical directors now? Or is it still a similar sort of makeup of creatives within your organization? The uh, we we have music directors. They are a vital part of our business in uh, helping clients find music and also helping us understand how clients find music, so we can try to replicate that experience on the website. But um, <clears throat> now we have more considerably more music directors today than we did, and uh, and probably more you know more to come. They're very very important for us. Uh, at the same time, we've brought in a lot of um, technology folks. And, you know, so I have a, a CTO and people who oversee database and, uh, and the front end programming and the back end programming and the search algorithms and the taxonomy and the metadata and everything. We have over a million recordings. It's, uh, it requires a lot of work. Yeah. One of the things that we um, often discuss in, in Synchronized is that uh, you build all this technology. You have people developing that technology. Your market is just the States. Now, the States is a big market, but wouldn't it be more um, generating more um, return on investment if you could employ that worldwide? So APM was, uh, as I had mentioned earlier, was set up uh, uh in 1983 to uh, distribute music that was owned by our owner companies, uh, which are now Sony Music Publishing and Universal Music Publishing, uh, to distribute those libraries in the United States and Canada. So we were specifically set up for that purpose. And uh, they have sister companies um, or agents in other territories around the world. Um, you know, such as yourselves and other many other people you know. So no, we don't handle that. Uh, and yes, it would be more efficient. But I think that there's something that has been gained uh, by just focusing on the United States. And that has allowed us to remain being the biggest and leading uh, library company. And uh, the way everything works in terms of the mechanical societies and neighboring rights and moral rights and everything in other countries are so different than in the United States. So it's allowed us to focus. And I think from that restriction, we have gained something. So one of the things we've talked about is Web 3.0. Uh, Adam, I wonder if you what you, you what your thoughts are about the next stage. You mentioned it's a creator economy and obviously things like blockchain will enable creators perhaps to be paid more quickly. I, w I wonder what other areas of Web.3 interest you going forward? Well, I think, uh, you know, on the most basic level, we provide music for synchronization and people need videos 
they need music in videos and no matter where it goes or how it's accessed um people are going to continue to need music and there's only going to be more and more uh videos created and so whether it's web point uh, 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever uh that doesn't change um and in fact i think it offers new opportunities um i think that uh that with the creator economy i think we're also getting into another phase which is um just really starting to flesh out and i think will grow which is the collector economy and so nfts are uh going to evolve there some of them are doing quite well my kids collect uh, buy and uh, and have done pretty well with it and uh and others too and so and how music relates to nfts uh, and how nfts can power participation of fandom into the world of the music that they listen to whether it's on the radio or in a program i think is going to evolve in interesting ways and so um i think web 3.0 gives the opportunity for a whole bunch of different uh, types of innovations and uh you know if i knew what they were i'd invest in them now myself but uh, don't have the crystal ball Don't you think that we need to adapt our um, the way we approach the market to be able to serve those people, those uh, creators? Yeah, and we're doing that. We're working on ways to have our music be able to be integrated in with various, uh, you know, with the metaverse, with uh, new technologies, so that people can. Um, access the music and so that will be through search through ai automated connections and uh, we're already working on that uh, kind of technology and adam do you think that the uh, kind of narrow view of a composer as somebody who composes music i say narrow but that's that's a kind of established view might change i refer to say the british uh, award-winning entry in the venice biennale where the artist is not just creating art, but she's creating music, uh, sound. So it's a kind of very much more more dimensions to it. To the art. I wonder whether you thought there was a there was room for production music to uh, to gain more dimensions, if you like, to have a visual element to it, or whether you think we're just we're music. It's in the name. Well, I think that. You know, artists, people who are creative are, uh, some of them are just creative in music and they don't do anything with any kind of visual medium and others are able to cross over and, uh, and they do. And I think that all of the, uh, I mean, even, even today people can, if they're a graphic artist and a composer or songwriter, they can exercise both of those, uh, passions <clears throat> and make money from that. Uh, so Um, but whether or not we go into the business of uh, being an important supplier of a visual medium, a visual content as a marketplace, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't think that's the first thing. I think things are moving so quickly uh, on the music side and the impact of all of these new technologies on music, we're probably better off focusing on on that for right now looking at shutterstock for instance with their premium beat um are they eating into your market or are they just coexisting nicely 
You know, mostly coexisting. It doesn't mean that we don't, uh, that somebody who used premium beat uh, wouldn't wouldn't have come to us if that didn't exist. But we've always had competition and yet we continue to grow. And yeah, I, so, I was kind of giving that as an example of a company that's, you know, opening to do both visuals and music and whether that's, right. I don't know whether Getty, do Getty do yeah, well, they, years uh, ago they bought Pump Audio and they have oh, yes. music in yeah. there, but uh, that has diminished in importance. And uh, uh, we used to come up against them, and now we don't at all. Um, right. And you know, with Shutterstock, uh, I don't spend a lot of time on their site, but they're—I don't know that that's an integrated business. I mean, they may be from staffing and systems and things like that. But when a customer is looking at imagery, they come for imagery, and if they want music, they come for music. And it doesn't mean that somebody might not want both; they might. Um, but it's not. Uh, to me, it's two separate things yeah. in a way. Yeah. But those creators, uh, we've had uh, people um, on our show from uh, epidemic music and also from artists. Uh, it seems that the creators are more are more looking now for a subscription model for music than anything else. Is that also something that you're looking at, or do you do you consider those companies like like competition a threat, or is it just business as usual? Well, I, I wouldn't say it's business as usual. Um, you know, they're attracting a certain part of the marketplace, and um, that's that's great. I, I'm not a fan of libraries that are sync-free or performance-free. I think that uh, by encouraging, you know, getting in music only from songwriters and composers who have not affiliated with a performing rights society is undermining one of the really important revenue streams for the creatives and for musicians and composers, songwriters. And I think that's really a shame. Um, so I think from that perspective, uh, um, you know, I'd like to see that change, but uh, it is what it is. And so, yes, there are going to be people who use them or other people who come online and want to buy subscriptions and things. But uh, our core business remains very, very strong and is growing significantly. And there's something uh, to say about the quality of the music, uh, hiring the best composers and producers and having an enormous variety of uh, music that has been produced over the many years and being able to reach out to the best songwriters and composers around the world who would be available to write for library music and uh, being able to get that music in. So I think we tell a different story. I think it's interesting to look at Epidemic and how they've stopped calling themselves royalty-free and now call themselves restriction-free in the sense that what that comments on our side of the business where you have to say it's, it's some, people can see it as quite complicated to sync a piece of music. So um, I wondered if you thought restrictions would drop away, Adam, and this, the process would become simpler. Well, I hope so. I think the uh, we don't have a problem here in the United States uh, from uh, on the performing rights side because we can grant uh, not you know license direct licenses. In other territories, it becomes uh, complicated, and I think that the societies are starting to figure out uh, how to deal with that. And ultimately, I think that there will be a worldwide agreement between the societies that will allow anybody in any territory to kind of plug into this overlay of a performance license. And then it would be up to the various societies to figure out how to distribute that. 
And so it, it's inevitable that, uh, um, that it's done. And we have already figured out ways to do that. So uh, if we have opportunities that have a worldwide component, we know how to address it. And so it's a little bit more complicated than that. But if you're, you know, uh, looking at the selection of music that, say, Epidemic has, since you mentioned them, and compare it to what we have, it's a completely different world. And uh, so there's a, a lot of music that is just not available through those kind of platforms at the moment. Yeah. So kind of at, at the moment thing. I mean, bear in mind they've got 1.4 billion in the bank, I think, Adam. So they've got some well, award chest. No, that's. I mean, that not, was not the the size of the valuation. They didn't right. receive that kind of money, and there was money yeah. that went to other things. And it's it's not as as simple as that. And uh, so they they have some money available. There's no question. But we're also owned by EMI and Universal. We're Sony and Universal now. They've they've also got some money available. They have some money in the bank too. So uh, we're not uh, we're not hurting, and we're growing very very nicely in a very healthy way. So a lot of you our to- list, sorry, a lot of our listeners will be much smaller libraries, obviously, and they'll be looking for you know a positive spin on this. I think to see that there is a future for uh, mm-hmm. not just the majors, but you know the minors as well. Um, right. I mean, APM as- is a major. Yeah, sorry, it's a major, right? Yeah. Well, I was just going to say. I mean, do, do, have you got put, uh, some hope for the smaller companies, or do you think it's going to be um, the majors that are going to really plow ahead, and the miners are going to suffer? Well, I think it's a combination. Um, you know, APM is a major, but we represent smaller libraries uh, yeah. as well as some large ones. So um, we can't represent every library, but we do represent. Uh, a lot of small libraries, and those are very important to us. I think ultimately it comes down to the quality of the music. And yes, there's going to be a set of people who don't care or something is good enough, and that's fine. But there's always, in my opinion, going to be a market for quality um, music and the people like uh, direct relationships with people as well, not everything is uh, going to be just a, a subscription, although that that has a role and it has a place uh, there. I think also, you know, songwriters can write from many different libraries. You know, they can um, get their their work out in a lot of different ways. So for me, you know, smaller libraries, it certainly there certainly is a challenge. I think you you have to decide if you are going to. Um, want to be your own distributor in a particular territory and uh, and build those relationships or you feel you want to uh, hook up with somebody who has a larger distribution methodology as it is and, and try to uh, get into that. Yeah. Two, two questions that are often asked um, on Synchronized. One, um, there is too much music out there or is there too much music out there? And the other one, what's the future of a sub-publisher? Do you still need sub-publishers? Your take so there is a lot of music out there, no question. Um, I think there is too much music, um, but there's nothing, I don't know how to do anything about that. People are, the barrier to being able to create music is so much lower. You know, you just need a Mac and you can create uh, your music. But again, I think that it is a, for us anyway, a quality issue. And anybody who is getting into the business, you have to make a decision. Am I going the volume business of, uh, you know, am I going the the kind of 
Kmart, Walmart direction? Am I going the, the Neiman Marcus direction or whatever? And uh, the um, and maybe you could even do both. But um, I think quality is important, and I think that there's a market for them. So I think it's good. Personally, it seems like, and I've heard this from other people. Uh, uh, I'm the chairman of the Production Music Association, and I speak to a lot of different people, and a lot of people are doing well. And sub-publishers? Do you still need sub-publishers as a small label? Well, I think so, because, uh, again, as I said before, you either have to do it yourself, or you have to be on some subscription service, or uh, you need a sub-publisher. So, um, again, I think it just depends on uh, what direction you want to go in. There are some people who just are not interested in subscription at all, um, and there, and then others are only interested in subscription. I think that also with the subscription market, a lot of those are non-exclusive. Um, and that brings up a whole other set of problems. I think that the non-exclusive companies are going to have problems, the non-exclusive aggregators. And because of, of content ID and audio recognition from BMAT, TuneSat, and other companies, SoundMouse, that are really helping to um, determine who gets paid. So if you have two tracks from two different suppliers, that are the same track, Who's gonna? how's the money going to flow? And there are a lot of people who don't want to get, a lot of the bigger companies who take in, uh, infringement and indemnification and things seriously, um, they don't want to get it from people who aren't exclusively representing a track. So that's something to keep in mind. I would encourage, if a library is going the route of quality, I would encourage them to, uh, in anyone, any particular territory, to either do it themselves <clears throat> or to get a quality exclusive sub-publisher. Yeah. Um, Adam, just moving sideways, AI, where, where, where do you see that interfacing with our industry? Huge question, but just give us a clue. Sure. Um, I think, uh, the, you know, the obvious one is the AI creation of music. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I imagine it's only going to get better and better. Um, and we've heard some uh, music that's pretty good. Um, so I think it has a role. I don't think it's going to replace the composer. I do think that there are probably online subscription services that are low dollars that you can pay a few dollars and get automated music created uh, or from a library of stuff. And it certainly don't, you don't have to pay composers. Um, so I can understand the model. Uh, I think there's a, there's a lot of unsettled law about it right now. Um, uh, let's say that a computer creates a track that actually does infringe on a copyright. Who's responsible? And how is a company protected? Let's say a, a, a producer put it into a show that's on the network, say NBC or something, and it turns out that that AI-created track is uh, infringing. Um, you know, it's an issue. And uh, so you can go after the computer company, I guess. Um, so I think there are a lot of things that really need to be settled there. I don't know. Are you familiar with the monkey photography case? Nope. No, no, no. It's, it's a famous one here where uh, um, there was a photo of this monkey that was very striking and big eyes. And, and it's a great photo. And uh, it's just basically a monkey uh, taking a selfie. 
And uh, the it turns out that it was actually the monkey that hit the button by accident and took the selfie from the with the photographer. And then somebody else took the photo and used it, and the photographer sued. And the courts ended up deciding that the uh, it was public domain because the photographer did not take the photo and the monkey didn't have any intellectual property rights. And uh, that's a whole other story. And, uh, right. <laughs> and uh, so, um, you know, you could argue that AI created music isn't copyrightable. Right. Yeah. So, so you could also argue, that, Adam, that... that AI composing might get better than composers, than real composers. I mean, uh, it, it's presumably as good as the input that's put into it. So if, you know, the top 10 American composers uh, started helping to develop a composing program, you might get find that the uh, that composing program is faster, cheaper, easier to deal with, better than awkward composers. I personally don't think that's going to happen. Um, anybody's guess, of course, but, um, you know, even, uh, with, uh, Watson and the games of chess and things have gotten very, very good and they can beat people, but they also lose. And, um, it's only gone to a, a certain point and it hasn't replaced the, you know, humans playing chess. Um, I mean, personally, if I were producing a movie or TV show, I really wouldn't want music that's AI created. Uh, I want to support the individual uh, composer. And um, I w I, I'm surprised actually we haven't gotten asked yet by networks to validate that we don't have computer created music for the legal reasons and just for the human reasons. Uh, I think it, it's interesting. Um, and uh, I think also that human creativity is uh, uh, is always going to be there and humans, it may be that a computer can come up with something that in some way is as good as something that, uh, you know, somebody came up with, uh, uh, you know, John Williams or somebody, but the humans are going to create things that the computer never would have thought of. The next generation is, would, would the computer have generated, developed hip hop on its own? Yeah, I don't think so. But I, I can understand that you prefer music composed by humans because you are in the business um, that we have right now. But if, if you are a new documentary maker or whatever and you've just discovered AI composing, you probably don't care about that. Depends what you need with music and how much is available. And um, it may be as a documentary producer, you actually do care about that. So some may, some may not. I'm not saying that uh, AI composing has no future. Uh, it does. And people have bought into these companies. And uh, uh, was it Spotify or somebody? Somebody bought an AI music company recently. I forget who it was. Uh, one of the uh, big TikTok. companies. TikTok. Okay. So yeah. people are yeah. investing in that space and it's only going to get better. Um, and uh, But I don't think it replaces individual songwriters and composers. Hmm. Uh, let, me, let me just also I, I just want to add one thing there's a whole other side of AI uh, with the use of AI in music uh, manipulation search and everything and that's where we're very heavily involved in looking at different AI tools for music discovery and music tagging and segmentation and audio similarity and 
and all of that. So that that's an area where it really enhances the ability to uh, work with music. The AI search is a very interesting thing because you can feed it with like, I want something from the production music uh, site, which has the same feel or sound like a certain song, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't that something that people would say, oh, the AI finds this song and this song is actually now a copyright infringement of the reference song? Well, uh, it depends how the algorithm works. And the algorithms uh, that we work with are not trying, and we've tested these things, they're not trying to find an identical track. Um, They're trying to find elements of music in all of its different aspects that have similar features to them. And um, so for us so far, it has actually been quite interesting and useful and um when we or if we find something we feel is too close to uh something else we just take it out of the library or we're not in the business of infringing on other people's copyrights so adam just drilling down on this a little more so music in our business is a hugely collaborative venture right you have many people in the chain so you've kind of said that the composing chair is probably best done by a human what about the orchestration chair and the copying chair and the recording chair all the other links in the chain are they better suited to ai i mean do you think you know a composer might give a piano score to an ai arranger and get instantly uh, 10 different styles of of arrangement Mm -hmm. which whereas you know a, a, a human arranger might struggle to do that in time I think the answer is the same. I think that that definitely has a role, no question about it. Um, And it may come up with arrangements that are more, you know, that are different than anybody else would have come up with. Uh, But at the same time, I don't think it replaces the human arranger. And I think that human arrangers are going to come up with with ways of doing things and sounds and other things that uh, um, the computer might not have come up with. So, yeah, I think uh, all of these things put pressure on uh, the human marketplace. I mean, look at uh, sample libraries. You know, if you're uh, in the past, if you were a cello player you and they wanted cello in the piece, it had to be a live thing. But now with sample libraries, you don't need that. So yeah, definitely going to change things. No question. Yeah. So we're going to be sk- Sorry. Well, I was just going to say your music always follows the technology, doesn't it? So, you know, uh, the te- technology doesn't follow the music. The music fo- the music follows the technology. So you, you couldn't have a Moog synthesizer without NASA. You couldn't have a saxophone mm-hmm. without the development of the the, the board <coughs> cannon. Mm-hmm. So uh, to me, it, it, it's just a massive door opening. And I, I you know, I'm very interested to, to hear what distinctions you make. Um, and it would be interesting to come back in 50 years, wouldn't it, and see where uh, where, where or it all ten, Or 10, or ten years. Ten, exactly, yeah. yeah. yeah well, well, hopefully no we'll be here in 10, Adam, to right. chat about it. The yeah, point for me, when, when it gets to. scary, is when you get AI publishers. Then, then I'm out of here, you know? <laughs> Look, it could, be, yeah, it could be anything, but uh, I still think that humans have uh, a role and... Uh, um, you know, maybe certain things evolve and we don't do some of the things we were doing before because computers can do them better, but we do something else. And uh, so, you know, a well, year, two years ago, who would have thought about NFTs, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it was clear that AMP is a people business. So APM, sorry, is a people business. So that's where your emphasis, perhaps where the AI will take over is when businesses that aren't people businesses, but they're technology businesses primarily, uh, will see it as a way of saving money. Well, we also are a technology business. We have a very sophisticated website and uh, taxonomy and metadata and tagging and algorithms and things. And so we utilize a great deal of technology in order to get our music to people. And uh, you can also pay for invoices online and things like that. So there's a, you know, there's a whole bunch of that. We're just not saying, okay, you can have all of our music for whatever you want for 10 bucks a month. Yeah. And we feel the music is worth more than that. And we feel that... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, that's the way to go, and we do well. Um, and uh, we're a very profitable business, and we have been since we were founded. Every year we grow. And, I mean, this is APM specifically I'm talking about, but uh, and I know that a lot of our competitors are also doing well. You know, we're, we're also in this age right now of the golden age of production, and uh, with all of the cable programming and streaming and apps and OTT, and <clears throat> you've got movies and TV shows, you've got documentaries, indie films, short films, all of that has uh, a variety of different ways of being distributed today. And then you've got all of the, the social media videos and the video games and things. And uh, we have our music in Roblox and uh, um, hundreds of thousands of recordings in there. And uh, there are millions of videos being created that have our music. You know? And um, that's just one example. So <clears throat> with all of this UGC that's been being created on all of these different platforms. Um, uh, there's just, an, I mean, TikTok itself, if you look at, there's such an enormous amount of video that's being created and it all needs music. In fact, TikTok is very music-centric, much more music-centric than, say, YouTube is. Yeah. Adam, you when mentioned... You look, sorry, Ferry, go ahead. Sorry. I've, when I've, when I've, you look at the uh, developments in our industry, uh, they go very fast. If, if you look then at PROs, do you think that they are moving too slow? Yes, for sure. No question about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, just <clears throat> touching on what I said before, and I've had these conversations directly with them, so I'm not saying anything that I haven't said directly. They've known about the Internet for some time now. You know, uh, they should have uh, figured out a worldwide structure for performance revenue by now. And uh, that is a friction point that has allowed uh, other uh, disruptive models to emerge. So Ferry asked you if you thought there was too much music. I'll ask you, do you think there's too many PROs? Well, it's a good question. Um, <clears throat> the, um, in the United States, uh, we have a uh, uniquely a competitive marketplace. And I think that that's healthy. Yeah. Um, and I think that has um, allowed composers and songwriters to get the value uh, from their music because of the competition. So I wouldn't want to see that go away. I would like to see the Justice Department constraints on ASCAP and BMI go away. And those are 40 some odd years old and they really are um, not allowing the societies to compete in a um, open buyer, open seller way. And that I think that should change. Um, in other territories, um, you know, the question I think is, uh, should there be an amalgamation of societies in some way or acquisition? And um, 
you know, and uh, but if that were to happen, it's going to end up being in the big countries, you know, PRS, SASM, other ones like that are going to GEMA, they're going to buy up the small ones. And so all of the other territories are going to end up without their own societies. And uh, so there's a question on that. Yeah. And, and how about just a disruptor like Elon Musk starting a society? I mean, he bought Twitter. Why, why wouldn't he start a performing rights society? Um, anybody could, God bless him if he wants to, I don't think that's in the cards, but, <laughs> but yeah, somebody could, and people have tried, um, it's a little difficult, uh, you know, like if we look at our, ourselves or any library in the U S we have deals with ASCAP, BMI and CSAC, and that covers hundred percent of our repertoire. And so, and we rely on performance revenue uh, to make a profit. We wouldn't make a profit if we didn't have performance revenue. And so if uh, let's say some con competitor to ASCAP came along and uh, if we were to go to them, um, I mean, and ASCAP has performing rights agreements with thousands or tens of thousands of entities that are all paying into the pool that ASCAP distributes. So how long would it take somebody to get up to a level where the money, let's say we completely pulled out of ASCAP, uh, which we're not doing, um, and went to some new hypothetical society, they'd have to be guaranteeing us an awful lot of money for an awful lot of years uh, so that we don't see any shortfall and that we can, uh, it'll also take care of the growth that we are seeing. So I think it's a challenge. It's, it's, it's difficult. I think it's more likely in Europe that maybe there are various partnerships or acquisitions of societies in other territories. Because one way, or, I mean, there have been different kind of affiliations. There's ICE and and uh, I forget the other ones, but um, uh, they've tried to do those kinds of uh, things. But I think they need to do more of it because this worldwide performance thing has to be uh, solved and it has to be solved quickly. Adam, um, I remember a PMA meeting back in, I don't know, probably about 2014, where we attended a meeting called Race to the Bottom, and there was a lot of talk at the time about sync fees going down and down, at what point was the bottom. How in a world where there's more and more music do we preserve value in, in, in music? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that every company needs to look at the set of value propositions that they particularly offer. And uh, for us... We look at the quality of our music, the quality of our customer service, customer success, our website, um, the pricing, and um, the how easy or hard it is to do a contract, and so and the support of the ongoing relationship. And so, I think you have to look at all of those uh, those things. And uh, we have not found any reduction in price over the last few years. Um, and yes, there are these subscription models, but you know, if we cut our prices in half and the subscription models doubled their prices, people who are going to go to the subscription model are still going to go to the subscription model. So I'm not worried about them and they, they haven't really had much of an impact on our business. Um, so I think that uh, I personally believe people should produce quality and uh, and offer <clears throat> that and good customer service and flexible pricing and a good way to discover the music. And I think that the music will get used. So I'm an optimist. You, yeah, good. <laughs> we, we just uh, had a, a small talk before we started the recording and you told us that you just came back from the NAB. 
Yes. And we were just wondering, Simon, so ask you the question: Is the NAB still going for the production music labels? And what's the answer? Uh, for me, uh, the answer is yes. Um, there are a lot of reasons to go to NAB. Uh, you know, it is the uh, the technology of broadcast and of streaming, and uh, a lot of the technology companies and AI companies and other people are doing things uh, that are interesting, are presenting, and uh, even if they don't have a booth, there they have meetings, and uh, so there's a lot of uh, interesting things going on there. Um, I had meetings with a number of different uh, production music libraries, nowhere near the amount that used to come. Um, we used to, uh, years ago we did a booth, but then we changed to a suite because the booths are, are just ridiculously expensive and not necessary. And so the suites uh, were there for like four days with constant meetings from first in the morning to uh, end of day and into the evenings. Um, and uh, so just two of us went this time uh, without a suite, but we had uh, a whole bunch of meetings with library folks, technology folks, and clients. So I, I encourage people to go. Um, uh, the production music conference that we run in uh, end of September, early October, this year it's September 21st to 23rd in uh, downtown LA, is specifically 100% devoted to production music. And you're going to get a much broader set of people who are coming out. Libraries from all over the world come. Technology companies that specifically relate to production music um, are there. And uh, a lot of other people, composers, songwriters from all over the place. I was going to say, would you advise composers to go to NAB? Is that something you, you think they should no. do? No, no. No, I think that uh, for a sub-publisher, it's an opportunity to meet with, or a library owner, it's an opportunity to meet with other sub-publishers, and you should check with them first to see who's going to be there. Um, uh, but it was a very busy time there, and uh, I really didn't have enough time to do everything that I wanted to do. Uh, so, uh, but composers, no. I think it's library owners, sub-publishers, and anybody in the technology of music. Yeah. Side. So, so basically, you use the visit to NAB also to keep up to date with all the technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And uh, although I barely had time to really pay attention to that this time because uh, there was limited time and uh, it was uh, it was just busy with all kinds of meetings. Yeah. Is there any new technology that's coming down the pipe that you're aware of that that uh, you think is going to be a game changer for us? Other than AI, we've talked about at length. Nothing that has uh, nothing in the way that you're thinking, like say, like blockchain is a game changer, or that I know of. Um, I still think that the impact of the blockchain and all of the related um, crypto-related things and NFTs and everything are really just beginning to have an impact. I think that uh, blockchain will have an impact on how music is distributed. I mean, how royalties are tracked and distributed about uh, transparency to uh, artists. And, uh, you know, part of the issue is, especially these days, songs are written by so many different people, with different publishers and things. So if one publisher gets on, redoes their technology to work on the blockchain, but then somebody else is not on it, you know, there's, it's going to take some time for all of that to um, to shake out, but it will. And so I think the impact of those things is just uh, really beginning. I think the impact of um, of NFTs is just beginning. Uh, we're developing our own NFT 
program right now, which is really, really interesting. And uh, it's an opportunity to connect with uh, your people who are passionate about the music. You're developing so your own it, NFT program? Uh, how does that look? How does it work? Well, I can't talk much about it yet, um, but we will be uh, announcing it. And we've partnered up with uh, a couple of great companies. And uh, um, it's really offering, it, it, it's creating a universe of fandom around certain subsets of the music um, that uh, people are passionate about. And, uh, you know, as you know, there's a lot of uh, boards and websites and other things devoted to the different kinds of music in production, whether it's trailer music or archival music or Italian film score or something else. I mean, there's a lot of different niches here. And I think what's one of the interesting things about um, NFTs is that it allows you to you can be successful with just a niche product. It doesn't have to be a global product. If you think about um, a, uh, you know, in the days of magazines um, where you've got, uh, you know, a magazine just on motorcycles, another one just on dirt bikes, and you've got one magazine for knitting and another one for crocheting. And, you know, all of these are, are sub communities um, and that kind of mentality and approach works in the NFT world. And uh, you you have to think of an NFT not only as uh, like a digital baseball card, um, but as a, um, well, you guys don't have digital baseball cards where you are, but uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I assume you know what they are, <laughs> trading cards. Yeah. Um, and, uh, um, and a social club. And so it's a way for whoever has created and minted the NFTs to communicate directly with the fans who are buying. Um, again, I mentioned my, my kids have NFTs and there's one um, called Azuki, which is quite popular and uh, they've done well with those. And there was a, an Azuki party here the other day uh, that they were able home. to- yeah, right. Uh, at a club here, and you could only get a ticket if you owned an Azuki. And huh. uh, and there were all kinds of value that was created at the event itself. And so that the people who went actually gained something from it. And uh, there were some gifts and some other things that were done. And so. And you also think that it's possible with genres and subgenres of production music? I do, I do, yeah. So that involves crypto, right? NFTs, only, they work with crypto, is that right? So are you gearing yourselves up to deal in crypto? So you can buy uh, NFTs with money too. Like if you go to NBA Top Shot, which is the largest of the uh, NFT marketplaces, uh, you know, the National Basketball Association, um, you can pay with your credit card. Oh, okay. uh, so. You don't have to buy with crypto, but there are most of them are. When my kids and his generation, their generation, they're in their 20s, are buying, they're using cryptocurrency. So they'll buy Ethereum, for example, which a lot of this is based on. And uh, um, although the NBA one is based on uh, Flow, the Flow blockchain by Dapper Labs, which is a very, very good structure. And that's what the NFL just announced and La Liga and UFC and a bunch of other ones. So, um, but you buy the crypto and then you, you put it in your wallet and you use the crypto to buy the NFTs. And then when you sell the NFTs, they, 
uh, the money goes back into uh, or the cryptocurrency goes back into your crypto wallet and then you uh, can sell that whenever you want. And also, you know, the, the taxes on all this are still being figured out, but uh, because <laughs> crypto isn't yet, I think, considered a currency. I'm not an expert in this, but when you sell your NFT, that's a transaction that you need to pay taxes on. And then again, when you sell your crypto uh, to turn it into cash, uh, you also need to pay tax. So it's uh, it's all getting, it's all shaken out, you know. Yeah, I'm still not sure about the whole NFT thing. Um, sometimes I think it's one of the biggest Ponzi schemes ever developed. I understand why people feel that way. Um, but I think that if you look at it from the perspective of creating community, um, I think that it has a lot of value. And, uh, you know, like let's take uh, APM, for example. We, our customers are, we're business B2B business. Uh, we're not dealing with directly the people who are um, actually enjoying the music and listening to it and programming. Uh, but this is a way for us to have a direct communication with them and build an audience and build excitement and passion and things. So, and then they can use our music and do other things with them, you know, through social media and stuff. We. We have a track that uh, uh, a young kid uh, took. It was one that we we do a lot of the music, did a lot of the music for SpongeBob when SpongeBob was being produced, and uh, uh, so he took a SpongeBob a track that was written uh, by a composer who died in 1968, uh, David Snell, one of the great library composers, and uh, remixed it, put it in a video, put it up on TikTok, and it went viral. There were about six million videos with that music in it right now. So that's just an example of the creativity of this creator economy that uh, that people are tapping into. And I think that library music, just like it's had this extremely important role in defining the sound of programming over the many, many years uh, across the world, it will have a role to play as these new markets expand. Quick question, Adam. Do you, the, the distinction between commercial music and production music has always been pretty clear. Do you think that will continue or will the two just merge? I think it will continue because on the commercial side, you've got uh, uh, the rights are split um, and you've got the publishing and you've got the master recording. And so um, in the library business, it's one-stop shopping. And, yeah. uh, and it's also pre-cleared. Every track is the same price. And you know that you can use it without even checking. You just have to pay the rate card. And that's very, very different than, uh, um, you know, on the commercial side. And, uh, you know, I think that the uh, there's not necessarily any distinction in quality between uh, library music and commercial music. It's how the rights are structured. So there's a, there's a big USB for production music. Explain what you mean. It's, 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 a, it's a, a very um, big advantage because people know who, who they need to pay how much they pay, and they only deal with oh, one see. party. Yeah, so a unique selling proposition. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, It is. Uh, and I think that that's why, I mean, libraries started for many reasons, but one of them certainly was it's so hard to license commercially released music. And even, you know, the publishers and record companies have tried to find subsets of their catalogs that uh, they could all get pre-cleared and everything. And that hasn't, it's never really taken off. And I think that the, also the, 
the technology needed in order to access this music is extremely important. So on the library side, we invest a great deal of money, as I said before, in technology, in search, uh, much more than uh, the uh, commercial side of the business. We're really a testing ground for that kind of stuff. And uh, so in many ways, the library business has been much more innovative has had to be much more innovative technologically than um, the commercial side of the business that can rely on the uh, the fame of the music yeah interesting stuff we're almost at the end of the episode um, you, you're looking at me Simon like you've got one last important question I've got a million more questions but I think we'll leave it there <laughs> Ferry I mean we'll have another go some other time maybe Adam I'd yeah, be happy Adam, to. It's interesting. It's very, you know, it's stimulating stuff. I appreciate the questions. Absolutely. Well, it was stimulating answers, and uh, I have to say that I feel energized after this hour, listening <laughs> to you. So that's a that's a great thing. I want to thank you for that. My pleasure. Um, I think it's time to say goodbye, and we hope that we can have you back in a couple of years and and talk about all the things that you predicted and see how it went. Well, I can tell you right now that I'm sure they're all going to be wrong. So, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know, we can't see, uh, you know, what's around the corner. So, uh, you know, and hindsight is always 2020. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's uh, no, but I'd be happy to come anytime. And uh, I love talking about this stuff. And I just uh, encourage people to write great music. Don't give away your rights for free and uh, and keep at it. It's a great <clears throat> it's a great business. Great stuff. I'd just like to say to our listeners, just to encourage them to give us a good rating because the better rating you give us, the more it enables us to make more programmes and talk to people like Adam who give us such great information. So many thanks, Adam. Absolutely. And also like us on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash synchronised podcast. You can find all the episodes there. Well, again, thank you very much, Adam. And uh, it was great seeing you and hope to meet in real life pretty soon. I look forward to that. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it.